Hello, and thank you for joining the New Life Baptist Church podcast. It is such a privilege to be able to share God's Word with you through this platform, and it's our desire that you would have an open heart to receive what the Lord has for you through this message. If you'd like to contact us, please visit our website at newlifecasagrande.com. There you'll find contact information to reach us directly, or if you're local to the Casa Grande area, you'll find information to plan your first visit. If you benefit from this sermon, please share it with a friend or feel free to leave a review. Now, let's get ready to hear what God has for us today. My grandfather just turned 83 years old yesterday. And uh, the weekend before I left, he was administered to the hospital. They took about 10 pounds of fluid off his heart and uh, is trying to fight some infection. The man just is mind-blowing to me. I remember as a kid walking into a little southern convenience store in North Carolina, and there was this uh, funny poster hanging there. It said, it said, missing, and had a picture of a dog. And the dog was missing an eye, an ear, its tail, and had three legs, right? So at the bottom, it said description. Dog's missing an eye, ear, uh, missing one leg, has no tail, goes by the name of Lucky, right? And I remember, I remember that vividly being imprinted on my mind. That's what we call my papa, Lucky. The man has heart disease, cancer, uh, uh, extreme diabetes, a prosthesis on his right leg, missing multiple fingers, has COVID twice, and takes a licking and keeps on ticking. 83 years old, I'm telling you, uh, praise the Lord for that. But uh, I'm, I'm recognizing living in Arizona that every moment or chance that I get to be with him may soon be my last. And so God worked it out for me to, to, to change my flight uh, out of Dulles, out of D.C., and drive down after the meeting Sunday morning, last Sunday, and spend Sunday night and uh, Monday morning uh, with my papa. We had a great time. I love my papa. He taught me to hunt. He taught me to fish. Uh, I have so many memories on North Carolina piers, uh, deep sea, not deep sea fishing, but fishing there in the ocean, uh, so many hunting stories that are just absolutely amazing. I, I used to think there was no greater hunter on the planet than my grandpa, right? There were, there were many cold mornings me and him would take that old uh, Chevrolet pickup truck loaded down with ladders and hammers. He was a carpenter and go park in the corner of a big cornfield and climb on top of the roof of the truck. And he'd have his 30 6 Remington. I'd have my empty 22 rifle sitting on the top of the truck uh, waiting for the big one to step out. I've watched him slay many of them. We've cleaned deer together. We have uh, fellowship together. We had a good time. So spending an extra $230 to change my ticket didn't it didn't even phase me. Uh, it, it, again, it may not make sense to you, but, but the presence of my grandfather is huge. And um, I'm going to miss those moments sitting there with him in uh, those situations. The, the value of that is astronomical. Um, but, but again, you wouldn't really understand that. Maybe you would if you've been in that same situation. Um, that connects us to where we're going to launch with this idea of the presence of God. It, it, doesn't, even, it doesn't even compare the time with my father as a uh, grandfather as much as what God wants to do with us. Why would God want to come down and meet with broken people? Why would he want to build a tent, a tabernacle? Why would he desire a stationary place? Uh, where people would go and sacrifice animals for the covering of their sin. Why would Jesus come and give his life here on Calvary? And, and, and I love this phrase, why would God move in our direction? 
Now, now think about that. We're going to start a brand new series on the tabernacle, and there's going to be a lot of details. But again, the details of my and my grandfather's story um, may not resound with you, but here's the beauty of this. As we look back to the picture of the tabernacle, it is going to scream the holiness and righteousness of God and that he would want to be in the presence of mankind. So we're going to launch this by the way of introduction with a short introductory video. And uh, this will just put us on the same page visually, and then we're going to dive into the Word of God. Would you watch? The Tabernacle, Hamishkan. The Hebrew word means dwelling place. It was where God dwelled with his people, and its elements show us how to relate with God. After delivering the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, God gave them detailed instructions on how to build this dwelling. Once constructed, the Lord descended on the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. Curtains separated the whole tabernacle from the rest of the Israelite encampment. In this courtyard was the tabernacle's largest piece of furniture, the altar. A wooden box covered with bronze. The altar was shaped as a square, measuring approximately seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. From top to bottom, it stood about four and a half feet. Hollow space inside the box allowed priests to insert coals. Above was a bronze grating where priests would lay animals for sacrifice. A horn of one piece with the altar stood at each corner. Four bronze rings under the ledge allowed one to insert carrying poles so the Israelites could transport the altar. Between the altar and the tent of meeting was a bronze laver. Priests had to cleanse their hands and feet here before offering sacrifices or entering the tent. Within the inner tent stood one of the most recognized elements of the whole tabernacle, the menorah a lampstand with three branches that rose on each side to create a total of seven lamps. This solid gold lampstand weighed about 75 pounds. Each lamp was a small cup that the priest would fill with oil to fuel the light. Each branch in the middle of the shaft had almond blossoms. The menorah served a most practical purpose. It was the only source of light in the tent, an eternal light that was never to go out. Also in the tent stood a wooden table covered with gold. On it was to always remain the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence symbolizes God's desire to be with his people. Incense was to burn continuously on the altar. God instructed the priests to replenish the incense every evening and morning. A curtain separated the holy place from the holy of holies. The menorah, the altar of incense, and the bread of the presence were all in the holy place, but outside this veil. Like the curtains covering the tent of meeting, this veil was blue, purple, and scarlet, with cherubim, a kind of angel. Beyond the veil, at the far end of the tabernacle, was the ark. The ark was a wooden box covered with gold. It was nearly four feet long. Its width and height 
were about two feet, three inches. Like the altar, the ark had rings and poles so the Israelites could carry it as they traveled. Within the ark were the two stone tablets on which God had written the Ten Commandments. Later, it contained a sample of manna and the rod that bloomed to reinforce Aaron's leadership. The mercy seat was the ark's lid and features prominently on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. At each end stood a cherub facing the other with its wings outspread. This cover was made of solid gold. The priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on this mercy seat, symbolizing that the nation's sins were covered for another year. While only the high priest would see it, the mercy seat was the key symbol of atonement that God would forgive his people. Though daily sacrifices on the altar were necessary for payment of sin, it was only through the mercy seat on the day of atonement that the stain of sin was washed away. While priests had to make repeated sacrifices, one man offered a sacrifice to atone for sin once and for all. When Jesus, the Messiah, died, he sprinkled his own blood before God, securing atonement forever for all who would trust in him. Jesus cleanses us, makes us pure, and enables us to rightly approach the Lord. He tore the veil that kept distance between Israel and the Lord. God dwelled among the Israelites through a tent. Now, he dwells within his people through the Spirit. Now that you've gotten a brief introduction of the tabernacle, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter number 25. Let's begin to lay some groundwork, some background information. As we travel through this, it's going to get very detailed, but I want, uh, what, what, what I want for you more than anything is for you to be a student right now. If you were paying a college course and uh, desiring to graduate, you would put forth a lot of effort uh, to make sure you got those credits accomplished, to make sure you had a good grade. I know you're not paying for this necessarily, but um, I do think when it comes to the Word of God, we need to put forth great effort. Therefore, we have printed out handouts this week so that you can take notes. If you did not receive a handout, would you raise your hand right now? We've got people available who will bring these to you. Several handouts. We've got some people down front, Keisha and uh, Jason. Uh, we're going to get these handouts to you. We'll try to provide these every single week so you can follow along. Here's what they're for. Uh, they're for you to fill in the blanks. They're also for you to take notes, to write down questions so that you can go home and take the Bible, Exodus chapter 25. Uh, it's a lot more, but through around 30, 31, spend some time uh, studying, understanding what God is doing here and why he's doing it. And I uh, hope that you'll um, avail yourself to this resource, and I hope that you'll study on your own as well. But here we go. Let's just kind of dive in, a uh, little background of, of what is happening here. I recognize that some of you are students of the Word of God. Some of these things are going to be very familiar to you, but I also recognize that many of us are not, and it's time for us to grow uh, in our knowledge of Christ and really to get an understanding uh, of a couple of things. So here we go. First of all, just a little background. In Exodus, God performed many miracles and rescued his uh, people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt around 1450 B.C. Now, uh, what, I, what I mean by miracles are those ten plagues 
plagues. Uh, some of us oftentimes look at the plagues as actions of wrath that God showed upon Egypt for the way that they were treating his people, but they were not. They had nothing to do with wrath. They had everything to do with God letting Egypt know, but specifically his people know, that he was God and he was greater than Egypt's gods. Ten plagues that put the hand of our God in the face of Egypt's God. Remember the sun went black. That was one of the plagues. Um, that, was, that was God saying, I'm greater than the sun god Ra. The, the, the Nile turning to blood, I'm greater than the God of the Nile. The cattle that they worship, I'm greater than the cattle. Even Pharaoh himself was considered to be a God. And therefore, God showed that he had greater power over life itself than even Pharaoh did. God helping his people to recognize, okay, um, his power and his greatness over all other gods that had influenced them for now three generations, all right? So this is what God is doing. Many miracles there in Egypt. In the passage, the Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness for a little less than a year when this conversation between God and Moses on Mount Sinai takes place. By the way, while we discuss this, it's really important to recognize another key element. I remember a good pastor friend of mine helping me recognize this many years ago. God did not bring the children into the wilderness to get them out of Egypt. God brought the children of Israel into the wilderness to get Egypt out of them. Don't ever miss that. That, that time, that span of time in that desert, that extra 40 years that was added because of their lack of faith was again God getting Egypt out of the people, not necessarily the people out of Egypt. And, and that, is, that is so vitally important to see. 10 plagues, God putting his hand in the chest of 10 false gods and then one year plus 40 in the wilderness so that the people would finally say, yes, God, we're your people and we're ready to go into your land. A part of that was this, this instruction of what is called a tabernacle. God summons Moses to Mount Sinai to give him instructions regarding the building of a special structure that would be called the tent or the tabernacle. Upon completion, the tabernacle was made mobile. It had portable furniture so that God's people, when the Lord would move, would follow him from place to place. This, this tent, this tabernacle would be in the center of the camp. The 12 tribes of Israel would be scattered around it. The tabernacle was a sign of God dwelling among his people. And why not? This was important because up to this moment, again, for three generations, they lived in a land where, where people worshiped idols, uh, molten images made of hands set in places of importance and recognition and prominence. And so there was a connection between God's being present and God being present in their lives. And so he is showing himself bigger and better. We'll talk about that again later. He appeared as a pillar of cloud over the tabernacle by day and a fire by night to signify the importance of his actual presence, not just a, um, an image, again, made of gold, silver, bronze, whatever, wood, but actual presence of God, the moving of a cloud, the brightness of a burning fire, God with us. And when that cloud would move, the people would move. And when that fire would move, the people would follow the presence of God. So significant and important. We'll discuss that in weeks to come. The people would not 
um, set out on any journey without God's moving hand first. It was definitely a visual, powerful statement indicating the presence of God. This is what we're going to be looking at when it comes to this thing we call the tabernacle. Look in your Bibles at Exodus chapter number 25, and we're going to begin reading with verse number one. Now again, today is a simple foundation bringing us to uh, recognition of a couple of things as we launch into this study that I believe God is going to take us for, for, for quite a while. I think it's really cool. The whole idea of the tabernacle literally references the presence of God among his people. And it wasn't on purpose. It just, it just by happenstance, um, knowing, not, not even recognizing or knowing, but this series is going to take us into December. The coming of Jesus Christ, a baby born in a manger, Emmanuel, God with us. I'm excited about that. I'm looking forward to seeing what, what the Lord's going to teach us uh, through this series. And so there's three main questions that we're going to answer by way of introduction. Why the tabernacle? Why the detail? And why does it matter today? Why does it matter now? Let's read the passage together. Exodus 25, verses 1 through 9. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly, with his heart ye shall take my offering. I read that and had to chuckle a little bit, thinking the first capital campaign written about in Scripture, the first fundraiser ever. I wonder if they had a thermometer, right, uh, showing how much. They probably didn't. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram's skins dyed red, and badger's skins, and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod, and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them, according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. Do me a favor, turn in your Bibles a little further to chapter number 29. Chapter number 29. Notice what the Word of God says there as he is reiterating uh, the purpose of the tent, the tabernacle. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. And what a powerful statement that he makes as he is now revealing himself, coming to live among his people, coming to the presence of those that he loves dearly, those chosen by him to represent him. The Israelites, what will it mean? What is its purpose? Why are we seeing this? Why has he done this? So again, let's answer three main questions. Why the tabernacle? Why the details? And why does it matter today? Number one, 
Why the tabernacle? The heart of God is found in the why. And that's important to recognize. The heart of God, the passion of God, the desire of God is found in the why. And so let's look at what he says as he instructs Moses on the top of this mountain to the purpose for which he is going to um, give this instruction. So notice the Bible, uh, what it says in verse number nine. According to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments. For, for, for what reason? Verse number eight, why? And let them make me a, the word here is mikdash. That is the Hebrew word for uh, sanctuary. Let them make me a mikdash. Let, let them make me a sanctuary. And, and, and what does that mean? How can we see the heart of God? It, it's really in the word and the instruction that he's given. Uh, the, the word mikdash or the word sanctuary, tabernacle, tent, dwelling place, is, is, the, is, is a place that is set apart for the holiness of God. See, a holy God to dwell with sinful people would require a mikdash, a sanctuary, a place that is holy and unique for a holy and unique God. Is God like us? Yes or no? The Bible tells us in the book of Isaiah, for, for the God that we serve is above us. And we know that he's in us and through us, but he's not like us. The, the word of God says in the book of John that he is a spirit. He is a holy, righteous, perfect God without sin. He is not like us. The, the Bible says his thoughts are not our thoughts, saith the Lord, and neither his ways our ways. As the heavens are higher than we are, so are God's thoughts higher than our thoughts and his ways our ways. He's just different. He's God. He's so much different. Therefore, if he's going to come among men, then it's going to require a sanctuary, a mikdash, a place of holiness, a place set apart. And again, the fact that God would want to come down among his people is just a beautiful, beautiful thought. So notice what he says secondly. He says, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may, I love this word, dwell. The word dwell is the Hebrew word shahan. It's, it, it doesn't look that way in its spelling, but in the way it's pronounced, it is this Hebrew word that simply means this, uh, to dwell among, to live among. I love the, the definition in the Hebrew, to move towards. Now, now think about that. God wants to dwell. His heart, his passion is to move towards. Now, I've heard this statement, and it's partly true. God can't have anything to do with sin, right? He's a holy, righteous God, and he is. But it amazes me that a holy, righteous God wants to move toward you and me. In all of his holiness and all of his greatness and all of his glory and splendor and grandeur, he is trying and continually moving toward us. Praise God for that. Now, you're going to see a picture of this now spread all throughout history. God moves toward Adam and Eve in the garden. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter number one, and then we're going to hop over to Genesis chapter number three. But let's look, first of all, at Genesis chapter number one. 
We discussed a little bit of this in Sunday school uh, this morning in our connection classes today as they are studying origins and the beginning of time. But Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 26 and verse number 27 is where we're going to be uh, for just a moment. Everybody get there. Genesis 1 and verse number 26. Here's what the Bible says. Actually, verse number 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So, so watch, God makes man in his, this is important section right here, in his own image, in the trichotomy of God, a body, soul, and a spirit, God makes man in the same idea of the trichotomy of who he is, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He gives us a physical form. He gives us intellect. The, word, the, the Hebrew word is psyche. He gives us the ability to choose and discern. He gives us a desire to worship and to, um, to have a spirit realm, if I could say. I want to be careful with that realm idea, but to have a spirit of worship that wants to um, uh, submit itself to something. God's designed that inside of us. We are in his image. Now watch the detail of chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. And all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because it, in it, it he had rested from all of his work which God had created and made. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created. In the day of the Lord, God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole earth of the face of the ground. The Lord God formed man, listen to the detail, of the dust of the ground. Watch what happens next. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the spirit and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. It was in this garden that God fellowships with man. Matter of fact, we recognize that uh, later when Adam and Eve have sinned and God has to make a decision because they chose to go God's way and chose to go their own way. Now watch what happens here at the end of chapter number three, verse number 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins. He covers them and clothed them from the sacrifice of an animal. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every away to keep the way of the tree of life. And so you, you see what's happened as a result of man's selfishness and sin. Man has been taken from this, um, this environment in which God created 
and has to set them outside of the garden because of their rebellion against him. This holy, righteous God now being separated from sinful, broken man. Wherefore, as sin entered into the world, so death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. God separates the two. And now we find this unique situation because of the rebellion of man where man is separated from God's original desire. Matter of fact, the Bible says in the previous passage that um, after Adam ate of the tree, that all of a sudden they recognized they were naked. They actually had to cover themselves because all of a sudden something happened within their psyche and recognition of who they were in the sight of a wholly perfect situation. Sin began to separate. Matter of fact, our children do that. When they're one, two, and three, they run around the house. Uh, it doesn't matter who's there, uh, naked as a jaybird. But there will come a time in their own psyche where they'll recognize, I need to cover. I need to put something on. I need to hide behind the couch. I, I am naked. And that, that idea of sin has settled into the thinking, the psyche of an individual. Uh, that is that separation moment from holiness and unto unrighteousness. And it happens for every one of us. We are born sinners separated from God and God loves us and he desires to be with us. So ready? Mikdash. In order for me to be among them, I have to have a sanctuary. What's a sanctuary? A holy place that I can be in among them separated from that sin. Why? Because I'm always moving towards them. That's why I love the verse, but God commendeth his love toward us. Can you answer that question? When did he display his love toward us? When? While we were yet sinners, he moved toward us. Praise God. Do you see the heart of God in the tabernacle? I know they're broken. I know they're full of sin. So I have got to create a holy place in which I can be in and reside amongst them so that I can move toward them. Beautiful, beautiful. First, why the tabernacle? The heart of God is found in the why. Number two, then why the details? Again, simple um, um, definition, I guess we could say, explanation of, of why the details. The holiness of God is found in the details. The holiness of God is found in the details. And let's talk about what that means. Go back to Exodus chapter 25 in verse number um, one, let's walk through one through seven. Now, now just think about the detail. I mean, what is the big deal? I mean, what is the big deal? Bring me an offering. An offering of what? I need gold and silver and brass. I need blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hairs and ram skins dyed a specific color red and badger skins, and chitim wood, oil for light, spices for anointing, and sweet incense. I, I, need, I need onyx stones. 
the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. This is what I'm going to ask. Now, as we continue reading throughout the next several weeks, uh, you're going to see how detailed it actually gets. There's going to be detail in how the curtains are hung. There's going to be detail in how the furniture is carried. Matter of fact, there's a story in the Bible where David gets the ark of God that has been stolen by the Philistines back from the Philistines. And so instead of getting the rods and running them through the loops, he puts it on the Philistine cart. The Bible actually uses the phrase, and he puts it on a new cart. And as that cart is rolling down the the street, it hits a bump in the road, and Uzzah reaches up to stabilize it, to, to give it some stability, to keep it from falling, and God strikes him dead as soon as he touches it. Why? Is it Uzzah's fault? No, it was David's fault for presuming that God's not in the details. Matter of fact, can I say this carefully without taking this too far right now? I think that's really the problem with the church of the 21st century. We're presuming too much that God's not um, concerned about our details. We see that. You're going to see how concerned he was about the details. Three sections of the tabernacle, the outer courtyard, the holy place, and then the holy of holies, veils that separated all these places from the outer uh, encampment of the children of Israel, colors being used. Um, I wouldn't call them rituals, processes by which they had to come before God. So many details. Why the details? Because it shows the holiness of God. And we see within that holiness a separation. I am holy, saith the Lord. Therefore, I have to separate myself from you. The the details create a separation between that which is average, the separation between that which is norm, a separation between that which is um, common to that which is absolutely and perfectly holy, so vitally important. You say, Pastor, why don't we do that then today? If it was a big deal for the tabernacle, why is it not a big deal today? Hold on. We're going to answer that question a little bit later. Right now, we just need an introduction to some important facts about this place called the tabernacle. Why why a tabernacle? Because it shows the heart of God. I want to be among my people. Why the details? Because it shows the holiness of God, a separation between God and man. And then also details show identification, Details are found in identification. Today, if I had to ask some of our veterans to wear their uniforms, we would by identification see the difference between a Marine and one who has served in the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, or the Coast Guard simply by the details of their outer garments. Are details important? Yes. Do details identify? Yes. Therefore, if God's going to identify his holiness, he's going to do it in the details. Okay. And we're going to see that as we study the word of God. And it brings me to ask the question, does God care about details now? Yes. We're going to answer that question a little bit later. Okay. Number three, number three, 
why the tabernacle, the heart of God is found in the why. Why details, the holiness of God is found in the details. Number three, why does it matter? Why does it matter right now? Why, why are we discussing this today? Because our hope is in God. Our hope is found in why it matters. So do me a favor. Let's, let me just prove this to you. Open your Bibles, if you would, to um, a great overview of all of this, the, the, kind of the helicopter view, if we could, of all of this in Hebrews chapter number 9. It's going to be a lot of reading, but I want you to read it with me, and I want you to stick with me. Hebrews chapter number 9, and let's see what God has for us uh, this, this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. This is just going to be such a mind-blowing and exciting series as we finally uh, get a, just a clear view of God uh, through his desire for us to, to, to see him and, and for him to be among us. Uh, but, but again, this is just a great overview of what's happening. All righty, I hope you're there. Everybody, your Bibles. Uh, by the way, I was encouraged uh, recently. I want to encourage our, our group here. I, I am, if you're a guest here, you, you wouldn't know this, but if you're a member here, you'd know I am so not against technology. I am so not against holding this in my hand and reading the Word of God. I do it every single day uh, for my devotions. But there is just something amazing and less distracting about a book. And we're losing sight of this right here. If you don't have one, it's in front of you. We'll provide them for you for free. Because if your iPad is like mine or if your cell phone is like mine, as I'm reading the Bible, uh, text messages are flying in, emails are popping up, ESP and e uh, updates are blasting my phone, Fox News is letting me know what's going on, text messages are coming in, phone calls. That doesn't happen when I hold this book and set that device way over there. Again, I'm not against it, but I'm telling you, again, I think it's in the detail. And, and we, we need to, to be a less distracted people when it comes to the Word of God. So I hope, again, I hope you don't feel bad. If you're, if you're holding one digitally right now, don't try to hide it. It's okay. We're okay with that, right? Uh, I'm just saying, man, it's just, uh, uh, it's good to hold some paper every once in a while. Here we go. Verse number one. Then verily, the first covenant... Uh, don't forget the word covenant is our word for testament or promise. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Promise, New Testament, New Covenant, New Promise, okay? So then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. So again, this is important. Uh, what you're reading now was not written by Moses Back in the book of Exodus, what you're reading now was written by another author that came along after Jesus Christ was dead and rose again from the grave. Okay, all right, so this author in here is giving us the helicopter view of the old covenant versus the new covenant, the old promise versus the new promise. Now watch, this is really cool. 
Inside that first tabernacle was the table of showbread and, and was that menorah and was that altar of incense. And when you walked into the holiest of holies, there was the uh, ark of God that we saw in the video. And inside, uh, it didn't show it on the video. He said it, but it didn't show it. If you were to lift the lid by which the angels were on top, inside of the ark of God would have been the rod of Aaron, the literal staff that Aaron carried. That um, in the box continued to bud, showing forth Aaron's authority by God to continue to give that life. In that box was manna, sample of manna, to show that everything they had was of God's free provision and they had nothing to do with it. Okay, um, And then in the box were the two tablets by which God wrote the law uh, to Moses. They were inside the ark. The lid was put back on. And that was the mercy seat upon which the blood was sprinkled once a year for the atonement of all mankind or all of God's people. All right. So now watch what the Bible says here. Don't, don't miss this. This is so cool. The Bible says, and it... And, and, and over it, verse 5, cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, doing what God told them to do. But into the second went the high priest only. So, so watch, the outer courtyard where the, um, uh, where the place of sacrifice was done, any Israelite could go if they were bringing in a sacrifice. The first veil, only the priest could go where the showbread and the, and the, uh, and the uh, altar of incense and the menorah was, the priest. But then there was one more level that only a high priest could go one time a year. No one else. Okay, so that's what it's saying. Okay, let's keep going. But in the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood. He had to have the blood with him which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest or seen while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So what's going to happen was not seen while the first one was standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Okay, this was just an act that God showed. It was not the act that did it. It was the work of God. Verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances and imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more or more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifying to the purified of the flesh, how much more, hallelujah, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's just pause for a minute and just recap for a second. If blood, if the blood of goats and lambs and birds and pigeons, whatever did this work, how much more when Jesus Christ went to the cross, shedding his blood and he dies, he breathes his last breath. He then goes to heaven. What does he do? He enters the holy of holies and sprinkled his blood upon the altar for who? All of us. Hallelujah for that picture, that foreshadowing 
of what Christ was going to come to do. We're, we're not done. Let's, let's continue reading. For, uh, verse 16, for where a testament is, a promise, a covenant, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So, so what this is simply going to say is this. Um, somebody's got to sign on the dotted line for a covenant to be um, validated. Is that, is that a good word? Someone's got to pay. Someone's got to give. It, it, someone's got to do it. Some lamb has to be slain. Okay, so, so watch what it's saying. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all, thy peop- all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you, the promise, or the blood of the promise that God has given to you. Verse 21, moreover, he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, listen to that, without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It was necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, amen, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. Get, you see that? Which are the what? figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer often as the high priest entered to the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundations of the world. But now once in the end of the world, he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I know that's a long chapter. Matter of fact, it's not even done. Chapter 10 continues this glorious thought of the work of Christ upon the cross of Calvary. Listen, church, this is the beauty of it. The tabernacle was the picture of what Christ was gonna do in the future. The tabernacle was for the people of Israel. Christ would die for the sins of the whole world. The sacrifice in Israel had to be done once a day if someone wanted to make a confession or once a year for the atonement of all the people. Jesus Christ died once and for all to cover the sins of many. This is why it's important right now because our hope is in God. Our hope is in the finished work of Calvary. Our hope is in Christ. Notice this. Why it matters, first of all, for the glorification of God. Christ was seen in the temple. The holiness of God was seen in the details. The glory of God now is seen through our salvation, through our manner of living, through our sacrifice. I don't know. I don't know. It's so many things in these days are debated and speculative, right? We want to try to justify just about everything we do. And that, that is just honesty. I do, as a pastor, try to justify whether it's right or wrong. The, the, the way that I dress, the music I listen to, the, the style of church I'm in, the way I act outside of here, 
And, and, and a common phrase oftentimes is, what would Jesus do? I, I, I just had an, I don't know if it's an epiphany. I don't know if that's the right word. I just had uh, a moment this morning. I, I got up and spent some time with the Lord and made sure everything was ready to go for today. And then I started to get dressed. And I love listening to music when I get dressed. And I turned on, a, uh, on, on some music on my, on my speaker there in my bedroom. And it was just playing randomly. One of the songs popped up. Uh, the, the title of the song is something to do with what would Jesus do? And the way the song was being played and the style by which it was being sung and the manner of the video by the singers and the way they presented themselves, the, the first time in a while I as a pastor and as a Christian, a child of the king, had to pause for a minute and say, yeah, what would Jesus do? Would he sing this song in this manner? Would he? The holiness of a righteous God. I know he lived in all manners like as we are, but there are, there are significant things and details about the tabernacle that help us to recognize again what? The holiness of God. Are we not the temple of the Holy Ghost? Matter of fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. Does God care about the details? Which ye have of God and ye are not your own. Does God care about the details? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify your God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. Does God care about the details? It's just a thought. It's just a thought. God hit me with a thought today. Does he care about the details? Are, are we presuming too much that God's okay with the way we're living, right? And, and that is not the emphasis of the message, but it's going to be eventually. The emphasis now is to see God and his holiness in the tabernacle and what he demanded of his people, and God changeth not, Right? Um, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And the reason it matters now is for the glory, our temple glorifying God. So important. Number two, the reason it matters now is relationship with God. God not only moved toward his people then, but through Christ, we just read about it, he moves toward his people now. Praise God for that. He's moving toward us now. He still wants to be through the presence of his spirit among his people. We are his temple. He lives inside of us. He is moving toward us now. That's the God we serve. This is not my message. It's the Bible, okay? If you don't believe that, would you do me a favor? Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. Look at the detail. Look at the detail. So mind-blowing. I've read this verse so many times in my life, but in a study of the tabernacle, um, several, man, it's been probably 10 years ago, uh, the, the Lord brought something to light about details that I haven't seen, um, and, I, and I hope you'll see it today. Notice the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Notice the detail. And be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why? Here comes the why. why okay, let, let me pause here. This is important. Why is there separation between two groups of people? Why? Have we seen the why so far in our study today? 
right? Why, why is there separation? Can you give me the word? I want you to think about it. I need you to think through the text. I just don't want to tell you what I think. I want you to think through the power of the Holy Spirit. Why, were, why was there such detail in the tabernacle? We just talked about it. What is the answer in your blank in front of you? Why the detail? The holiness of God. So, so in that next question, when it says um, in 2 Corinthians verse number chapter 6, verse 14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Why has why there got to be a separation? Now watch. For what, notice the, notice the five details that he gives here. He's going to give five specific details. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? Detail one. Number two, what, what's, what's the word there? Communion hath light with darkness. Here's the third detail. What concord hath Christ with Belial? Here's the fourth detail. Or what part hath he that believeth when an infidel? The fifth part, ready? Here's the covenant part. And what agreement, what contract hath the temple of God with idols? You see the detail in our fellowship and our activity and our contracts and our covenants in the parts that we play, the pieces that we are in this whole gamut of life, the detail. Now, now watch what he says next. So important. Look at verse, verse number 17 or verse number 16. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Ready? For ye are the what? You are the temple, the temple, the, the tabernacle, the, the location. Uh, again, it, you say there, there are three different places. Yes, one was portable that led us to a permanent location called the temple. And then the temple led us to the person of Jesus Christ who gave his life and ripped the veil of the temple. And in us, we became the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now watch what it says. The temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell, there's that word, in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Can I ask you a really cool question? When the tabernacle was built, where did God walk? Think about this. Don't miss this. Where did God walk? Did he walk in the courtyard? No. Did he walk in the holy place where the menorah was and the showbread and the, and, and the altar of incense? No, where did he walk? Where did his presence manifest itself? Inside what? The holiest of holies. Think about that. Please don't miss this. I'm not trying to preach a, a messed up church thinking, but I'm telling you the church is messed up. It's just messed up. We are the temple of God. We are the holy of holies. Do you get that? This is where God walks. It's where he resides. He lives inside of us. I know we can't be perfect, and I get that. We serve a gracious God, but I'm telling you, we're just presuming too much upon a holy, righteous God. When God's picture was foreshadowing what's to come, he went from a portable place to a permanent place to a person who lives inside of you and me. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. But why? Go back to the original. Why? Why the tabernacle? Why the temple? Why me? Go back to what it says. Because I want a sanctuary. I want a holy place that I can move into. A holy place where I can move toward you. Oh my goodness, church. 
He's moving toward us. He's not hurting us. He's helping us. He knows we're broken. He knows we have a need of him. So why the detail? Separation and identification. How beautiful is that? Is the tabernacle a big deal? Yes. Because later on, the author says, we are the tabernacle. Matter of fact, Paul says, someday I will lay down this tabernacle and I will be in that final place in the presence of Almighty God. Church, I'm telling you, this is so mind-blowing and moving as we look at who God is and what he's trying to do toward us. It's just amazing. We serve a wonderful Savior that in our darkness moved in amongst us. And our goal through this study of the tabernacle, we're going to see the holiness of God first. Secondly, or excuse me, the heart of God first and all the whys. We're going to see the holiness of God in all the details. And then we're going to see the hope that you and I have today. Did the, table, did the tabernacle work 3,000 years ago or 2,000 a little over? Yes, it did. Did the temple work 2,000 years ago? Yes, it did. Does the temple work now? Yes, it does. We have hope. Our hope is in Christ. And it may not make sense to the world why we're enslaved to the detail, but it does to him, and that's all that matters. Again, you may not feel the same way I feel about Papa, right, um, and why um, I'll probably never use another gun to hunt with other than the one he gave me, okay? That 30 off six will ever be in my hands, okay? Um, I'm going to hunt with my sons in December. They're not getting that one. They're getting all the others. I get Papa's. I'm going to hold on to it, okay? So you, you understand that means a lot. So how much more as we see why God wants to meet with us in the details of why and the why we're holding on to who that he is? Let's Let's study this together. Let's say, God, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to learn? Father, thank you for our time today. It's been a long service. Lord, we have honored. We want to thank you for joining us on the NLBC podcast today. We hope that God will allow this message to truly make a difference in your life. As you learn more about him and as you study his word, we pray that it will cause you to live out the gospel in a whole new way. Again, if you would like to connect with us, feel free to reach out by visiting our website at newlifecasagrande.com. If you are local to the Casa Grande area, then we would love to have you join us in person. We have services at 8.30 and 11 a.m. each Sunday morning with a host of other opportunities to develop a godly community to learn and to grow. We'll see you next week on the New Life Baptist Church podcast.